all our dear listeners and welcome to the wine list season two episode four uh, and i don't want to use the word excited because we use that quite a lot in this podcast but we are easily excited me and richard um so we are quite excited with this one it's going to be a two-parter uh, my name is oliver turnbull and i'm joined as ever by the fine gentleman that i've known for a third of a century mr richard lane hello richard hi all guess what excited yes isn't it uh, like I said, it is a two-parter because we're tackling the subject. Richard's going to explain this um, in a little bit more detail of value in wine. And we're going to do it in two bits. But Richard, um, what made us think that we should be talking about value? And indeed, what is value when it comes to wine or indeed anything? Well, oh, exactly. <laughs> it's a great question. And that's re- why, actually, as, the more I think about it, the more I realise we need a couple of eps to do this. Because at one level, we can just say, oh, there's a cheap wine and there's an expensive wine. And can we taste the difference? Yes, we can. I mean, so we will do that because that, I mean, that is just part of your education anyway. So we've got to do that. But at another level, I think, and we picked up on this a little bit in season one when you were doing that spectacular failure, if you remember, between the Chablis and the Chablis Premier crew. Um, yes, what was my score? It was naught, but it was a very naught, spectacular, yes. really flam- what I call a flamboyant naught, if you know what I mean. Yeah, um, uh, and all guns blazing. <laughs> you did, it was great. But one of our little points there was, um, the Chablis Premier crew was £25, so, you know, not inexpensive, clearly. But the Chablis itself, I think, was 16. The ordinary Chablis was 16, or maybe it was 18 or something. And we suddenly thought, you know what, for the few... Actually, I've got that wrong. It was only about a fiver difference. Anyway, the point is, the extra fiver, which I appreciate not everyone can afford, actually felt like better value than the cheaper wine. So that got us thinking a bit, didn't it, about this thing. And then what's happened since we did season one is, well, you know, to sound like a politician, well, you know, it's Vladimir Putin, isn't it? And what he's doing in, you know, over in Ukraine. I mean, you know, we've got to blame him for everything. The lack of investment in the UK over the past 13 years. Sorry, sorry, I didn't mean to go like that. But you know yeah, what I mean? The performance of Tottenham Hotspur in Europe. Yeah, exactly. E- exactly, exactly. So, um, no, but seriously, clearly everything's getting more expensive. And a lot of people are being hit by the cost of living uh, crisis. They're having less money in their pocket. The mortgages are going up. Um, inflation in the UK is around 10%, which is shocking. And we see, for, oh, I was looking at my notes of my um, diploma studies when I studied the WSET diploma three years ago, and it had the price of the wines that we tasted. And these are the wines that I'm now showing and teaching at the college, and they've gone up 20% in three years. Yeah, that's shocking. So, I mean, well, if you consider it's 10% now, inflation actually doesn't sound so bad, but you get the point. You know, everything's got it more expensive. Wine has got more expensive. So, again, it begs the question, how relevant is wine if people have less money in their pockets? And really, really begs the question, of course, we want people to still keep loving wine. Can they still enjoy it? Can they find value? And value may not mean the cheapest wine around, but it might mean spending a little bit but not much more maybe than we thought a year ago and so we can can we tease out a price point particularly in the off trade you know from wine shops supermarkets and stuff where we could almost reliably say do you know what we could find some great quality here that could be a good thing to find out don't you think yeah absolutely and what i feel is that i i don't mind paying a decent price for a decent product but i never want to spend 100 pounds on a bottle of wine i don't think i'd even enjoy it as a yorkshireman but also but also i have a taste for wine now and i don't want something that's disappointing if you're going out you're going to spend a little bit of money i don't mind spending a little bit more than the basic to have something that i really enjoy um because having something that's disappointing is is, is just going to be a, a complete waste because you're still paying restaurant prices so it's that kind of goldilocks zone 
zone where it's um, it just the quality is good enough for it to be really delicious, but you don't want to be completely extravagant and have something that you 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 really are not getting the true value of because you can't appreciate it. So there's that lovely balance that we're looking for here, Richard. I think when it comes to value. As you would say, Oliver, 100%. And the good news is, Oliver, and we'll use this in uh, the second part of our two-parter, there's a really, really lovely guy I know a little bit called Richard Bamfield. Mm. He's a master of wine. And he is a consultant, not the buyer, but a consultant for Little the supermarket chain and of course of course little are what what is known in the trade as a deep discounter they offer you know really uh, in terms of good value in terms of low priced goods uh, beans peas tins of corned beef and wine actually and you know so he's agreed to chat to us about this whole concept of value and price points and stuff so i think he might be shedding some light on this map, on this topic. Or, and once we've chatted to him, I think we need to whiz off to Little and, and, and put it into practice. So that's going to be coming up in, in the second part. I think that couldn't be better. I mean, not only is he an expert in value, but also um, Little is a supermarket which is you know dedicated to giving people the best value and, and maybe people who don't consider themselves experts in wine but still want to um, get the product that's available to to them sorry that's appropriate for them so yeah i'm really looking forward to meeting richard i know you know him quite well um so he's going to be in part two but in part one we're going out into the field as well richard's going to reveal the location of where we're going to be but we're going to be tasting some wines at different price points and we're going to get try and get our own idea of where that goldilocks zone of value is and richard for episode one it's probably time for you to reveal where we're going to be well i'm sure this is going to come to a huge surprise to our season two listeners i think we might possibly be meeting up in london's quote oldest wine bar unquote that dates to 1890 Oh, I know the one. Uh, do reveal, though, but I think I've got the answer right. It's it's Gordon Bennett, isn't it, down uh, near Charing Cross? Gordon's yeah. Wine Bar, where else? So that's where we are going to go. We are going to meet um, a, a special guest there as well by the name of uh, Charlie Turnbull, uh, and he is a relation, so he's going to feature as well to give us that view of the young person's palate. So part one, off to Gordon's. Part two, we'll meet Richard and off to a supermarket. Um, Richard, do you think it's time for our adventure in value to begin? Oliver, I think we can chat away like this now, but frankly, let's get off the blower and I will see you at Gordon's. So we're back in Gordon's, our favourite haunt, I'd say, Rich. Fantastic to be back here. Oh, golly, I remember when we met up in the summer. It's baking hot. I think you or maybe we were in shorts or maybe I've dreamt that. It was really hot anyway. We sat outside. It's now about minus three outside. And Gordon's is full on a cold January Tuesday evening. Gordon's is full. We're having to wait for our table. That's because Gordon's is always full. Well done, Gordon's. I thought we'd start all with something really, really simple because we're going to be exploring this whole important thing which is how low can you go in other words price points where is value is value only found at the cheaper end we know value can be found further up we discussed that last time but particularly in these quite difficult economic times maybe these entry-level wines are important so we're starting with gordon's house white got your glass cheers mate there you go good to see you again all i will say is it's cold 
uh, the glass is cold, as well as outside being cold. I think they left it outside for a bit. It's quite a large glass, 175 mil. Let's give it a little sniff. I just gave mine a swirl and a sniff. I'm getting really good at that, by the way. And I'm always doing it in restaurants, which looks a bit pretentious, but actually it's so good. But I'm not getting much of a nose off this baby. Yeah, two comments, actually. But the wine is really cold. And remember, if your wine is too cold, you're kind of keeping the aromas and flavours under wraps. I think they do that in pubs sometimes deliberately because there aren't any good aromas or flavors to come out so they keep them nice and cold this will warm up obviously because we're in the lovely buzzy bosom of gordon's uh, which is great or maybe the bowels rather than the bosom but you know what i mean let's have a sip this is a simple sauvignon semillon blend french blend bordeaux i think very simple i've just had a glug and it's all right it's nice it's flavorsome but it's it feels a bit um as usual i struggle with my adjectives but i want to say thin or weak or almost watery i mean it's tasty but i've had some things uh, particularly in here with a lot more going on seemingly yeah you mentioned some good things there watery i agree i think one way you can really assess if you want to assess wine you know has it got really good concentration is that satisfying giving you a bit of intensity how watery is the wine and the first thing you notice this wine yes it has flavor the flavor is very quite green quite grassy quite citrusy which is what you'd expect with kind of sauvignon blanc blended with a bit of semillon semillon gives a bit of lemon character to the blend that's why they're often blended and also remember, most people think, oh, Bordeaux, how exciting, top, top wines. Everyone's got to remember, huge amount of Bordeaux wine is really ordinary. And I think, without discrediting our lovely host here at Gordon, this is one of Bordeaux's ordinary expressions. The house white is a simple Sauvignon Semillon blend. It's fresh and grassy. I think it would be nice outside on a warm summer's day. It's not tasting so great on a cold January evening. Yeah, that's fair enough. And actually, I must say, it is nice. I mean, we've got used to uh, drinking such lovely wines through the, season, the, the, the two seasons, and you've selected them, curated them brilliantly. But actually, it is, it is, it is pleasant. But maybe, just maybe, I'm developing a, a palate for um, what, uh, the wines between pleasant and between really knockout. Um, for example, I have to say, I bought a crate of hermit crab. Ah. A case, I should say. Crate is more beer. Yeah. I bought a whole... It's absolutely divine every <laughs> night. It's just such a lovely reward. After I've had a, a stressful day at work, it's brilliant, brilliant. One of my faves. Yeah, the hermit crab is a winner. And a lot of my friends who listen to season one have done the same thing. So I think old Darenberg needs to be giving us a bit of a commission, frankly. This is lovely. This is simple. I said this is a summary wine that we're tasting on a winter's evening. It's one of those wines, and again, this is not being snooty about wines. Some wines are really great for certain situations. If you're at a party with lots of people and the focus is banter and chat, you don't want a complicated wine, do you? You want a simple wine because you're not going to notice the wine because you're hopefully having a great time with your mates. This simple wine, I would suggest, requires really good conversation also. Perhaps we're, perhaps, perhaps we're not having an ace time, oh bugger. <laughs> so this one would require the, the wit of Oscar Wilde and the adventurous stories of Alexander the Great. Not Oliver Richard. Richard. <laughs> <laughs> you witchering along about a particular day on the, on the fourth test against Australia back in the uh, 1980s. No, uh, the banter and, uh, what did you call it? The banter and chat. The banter and chat. Uh, they, they were your, your solicitors, aren't they? The banter and chat, well-known solicitors of Tunbridge Wells. <laughs> it's pleasant enough. Well, well worth another sip. Well worth cheers. Sip. Cheers, cheers. Hi, my name is Dwight. I'm from Madison, Wisconsin. Hi, my name's Deirdre. I'm from Newry, from Northern Ireland. I'm Kirsty, and I am from Madison, Wisconsin as well. So, Rich, we have met some lovely people. Uh, uh, not, not from these aisles. Well, no, one from these aisles, but not from this land. Absolutely. Should we ask them what they're doing in Gordon's? My wife is here on business, and I decided to tag along so I could see the sights. 
And does she know Gordon's? Is that how you got to be here? She had the recommendation from, I think, a colleague. I believe Kirsty actually recommended that to her. Oh, so Kirsty, have you been here before? No, I haven't, but I read about it in the New York Times travel section, which is my favorite place to research interesting places to visit when I am on work trips. Oh, good for you. And so this is your first time? Yes, but I read that it was the oldest wine bar in London, and that intrigued me. So here I am. I think you'll find there's about 27 oldest wine bars in London <laughs> and about 300 oldest pubs. So have you been here before, David? I have, yes, but a few years ago. Um, I've been a couple of times, actually. Once inside, once sitting outside. Oh, right, we've had that outside experience as well. And uh, what draws you back? Does this, to you, feel like a quintessentially English, British kind of hangout? It does, yeah. It's really friendly, cosy. You can imagine it in like olden times where people used to come for eel and wine. Are you wine connoisseurs generally back home, Dwight? Connoisseur might be overstating it, but I do enjoy a glass. I'm in a wine tasting group called We All Should Taste Every Day or the acronym WASTED uh, for short. <laughs> Perfect! We try to sample at least once a month. We have a get-together and usually themed either to a particular grape or a variety of wine. And, yeah. That is absolutely amazing. Any, any views on the wine? What wines have we got here? Do we know? I'm having the Bordeaux, that is the Gordon's own label. Um, I'm really enjoying it. I am not a terribly sophisticated wine drinker, but I do like that this is sort of soft and sort of well-rounded at least that is my perception of it um, I'm enjoying it you sound a little bit like me almost like apologetic really when that you don't know about wine but actually when you come out with the adjectives you did you describe it perfectly and like Rich always says who is an expert in wine it's not just about being a real expert it's about the whole experience which is what the French tell us about wine France it's more of an experience uh, in Italy, similarly, in, in other parts of Europe. And I think that's really uh, kind of important about making it, um, yeah, basically not just about the booze. Right, so here we are. Uh, other end of the scale with regards um, price, Rich. Yes, Oliver. Um, it's not often, I almost felt a bit guilty when lovely Emma, who served us with our house white earlier, the, the Bordeaux Sauvignon, semi-on blend that we thought was okay but nothing special she just came up and said hi Richard can I get you with another glass of wine and I said please maybe have the most expensive wine in the house yeah it was like a scene from Withnail and I it was but I didn't quite have the conviction <laughs> felt a bit of a middle class twerp <laughs> twerp what a great word that's an Ian Carmichael kind of uh, word Ooh, hard cheese there's a lovely hard cheese called Comte. Do you, do you like your Comte? Yeah, yeah. Love Comte. It's my favourite hard cheese. Um, <laughs> it's it's really kind of um, mushroom, a bit kind of nutty. It's got a lovely nutty quality, and it comes from Burgundy. And we haven't got any right in front of us, although I'm sure we could ask for some here at uh, Gordon's. But because we're exploring price points and more prestigious, potentially, well, certainly higher, more expensive wine. So what we have here, all is a bottle of 2020 um, white burgundy. Well, let me see if I can read it. It says uh, Poulini Montrachet. That's yeah. exactly what it says. Does it say Premier Cru or Grand Cru, or does it just say Poulini Montrachet? 
No, I don't think so. But anyway, because um, Gevry Champertin is another part of Burgundy, which produces red wines. Anyway. It's almost as if the French are putting things on their label just to confuse. They very kindly, thinking that we've bought, well, as we have bought the most expensive white wine in the house, put it in an ice bucket for us. Frankly, out she comes. Because do not want this white burgundy too chilled. White burgundy needs to be really, this is Chardonnay grape variety, really needs to be at kind of more like almost getting towards room temperature. So if you're having your white burgundy out of the ice bucket or fridge, it's too cold. Needs to warm up a bit to release. Hopefully, we might find some interesting flavours. Let's have a look at it, Oh, Yeah, it has already, because I did a bit of a swirl and a bit of a smell, and there's so much more going on in the smell. I'm getting so pleased with myself for being able to maybe detect a quality wine from one which is a bit okay. So Uh, what can you smell? I don't want to say fruity, because it's not quite fruity, uh, but I don't want to say earthy either. Or am I saying earthy and mushroomy? I'm not quite sure. Oh, our food's arrived as well. So, uh, ah, Richard has ordered the obligatory scotch egg. Thank you, Emma. I'm very glad to say Charlie's joined us, who's my son, a 24-year-old strapping lad, man about London, not massively versed in wine, learning a lot about whiskey. We're having some lovely times um, sharing whiskey at Christmas, but um, not so much wine. But we've given him a glass because he totally deserves it. Just give us your first thoughts. Is it tasty? Uh, Well, thank you for the charming introduction. I've given it a swirl, which seems like the right thing to do. He's actually tasting it live. That's really nice. That's really nice. I don't know exactly what I'm tasting. I don't know how it's nice, but I know it's nice. It's really, really good. So all, all through the se- seasons, uh, uh, Richard's been sort of trying to teach me how to describe the taste of wines and appreciate it more. And I have started to appreciate it more, but it's very difficult to think of the adjectives. Richard will say something like slaty, and you'll go, yes, I suppose it is really. Because <laughs> yeah. I think it's, that's the other thing as well, where it's sort of influence. I think sometimes where if someone says oh that's strawberry tones then I'm looking for the strawberry I feel like I'm very much looking for what I've been told to look for when apparently I think wine's a lot more about just yourself and what you taste and how it makes you feel and what your kind of comes to mind when you're drinking it that's really important too I don't want to comment on give me your comment first because is there anything generally about this wine all that you think is different to the first wine well definitely I mean temperature notwithstanding there's so much more on the nose than the first one. And what I'm really kind of um, happy about is the fact that I'm pretty sure if you'd put these two glasses together and I'd tasted both of them, I'd have picked out the quality wine. No, it's definitely not fruity. It's much more earthy. I don't know why I want to say slaty, but I don't think that's quite right. A few things going on here. As a general point, compared with the the house white, which was a little bit watery, do you remember? There's nothing watery about this wine. Yeah, there was another thing that this wine isn't actually. But it's another thing that the, um, the Hermit's Crab that I really love now and has become one of my favourite wines had, had an oiliness to it, which I quite like. Yeah. This one doesn't seem to have that. It seems to have a much more fresh sharpness to it, but is nonetheless delicious. You see how difficult this is, Charlie? <laughs> it is. Okay. <laughs> Do you ever run out of words when you're doing like a long tasting? It's just there must be only so many ways you can... Well, it's a good point. There are lots of ways of doing it. Um, when you study it formally, which is what I do, I teach it, you kind of have a lexicon that you're sort of supposed to stick to, which sounds a bit reductive and a bit restrictive. Generally speaking, with a white wine, you're thinking, can I taste fruit? Is it fruity? And there is some fruit here. This is Chardonnay. Unlike Sauvignon Blanc that we tasted earlier, which is much more aromatic, fresh, herbal. Chardonnay's a bit quieter. Do you remember our Chablis Premier Cru all? Very, very much so, and I've had some since. Appley. To be honest, and it relates to climate, and Burgundy isn't the hottest wine place in the world, eastern France, 
tend to get things like apples and lemons, but that doesn't make a wine necessarily exciting. You can make a very simple wine from apple and lemons. So with this wine, which does have apple and lemony qualities, there must be other things going on, which there are. And it's, first of all, there's a real lovely intensity. There's nothing watery about the wine. So it's like a concentration of fruit, which suggests that the, ri- the grape ripening has been done incredibly well. Which, and in Burgundy, which is not a million miles from here, as the crow flies, it's all about the slopes. And are you on a south-facing slope, facing the sun, so the grapes get really ripe? The best vineyards get the best sunbeds and put their towels on them. The other thing they do in Burgundy is they put wine into oak. And so there's some complexity in the wine here, but the winemaking heritage in Burgundy goes back hundreds of years, so they're so good at it. Actually, some of the complexity in this wine is coming from the fact that the wine has been in oak barrels for maybe a year or two, giving it a slightly woody, vanilla kind of cedar, rather lovely flavour, adding in with the apple and the lemon. And, although it's only a 2020, there's a suggestion of some complexity, like earthy, slightly earthy, savoury quality a little bit on this wine. That's what you get when good wines bottle age, i.e. wines that have got lovely, concentrated fruit from the vineyard, from the best slopes, Uh, from a sunny vintage they develop basically the chemicals develop in the bottle and that's when they start to bottle age this is a bit young but is beginning to go there but it's already quite complex the best thing about this wine is its lack of wateriness and beautiful concentration sip it again and and after you've swallowed it see how long you can still taste it afterwards can i declare before we do that too late it's gone down his gullet can i declare grapefruit absolutely so quite often most white wines will have some citrus so it's so the easiest kind of note for a white wine is to taste of lemon but here i agree it's very le- it reminds me of basically fruit wise i would say lemon grapefruit apple pear that kind of thing that's pretty much most fruits <laughs> well, it's not peach apricot it's not banana <laughs> pineapple Guava, kiwi. Exactly. Yeah, good point. In the wine lexicon, it's actually not very many. It's in the green fruit and the citrus fruit areas. Got it, got it, got it. Um, Yeah, no, I can tell that. And I gulped mine down. Are you having a gulp, Charlie? Just to see how long it lasts in your mouth. You don't have to do all of that, but a decent (laughs) swig, because it's still, the lovely flavours are still in my mouth. Have you had a swig? Yes. And what I find interesting is kind of what flavours fall off first, for me at least, and what flavours stay. So I felt... The oakiness stayed the longest for me, and the sort of more citrus seemed to kind of go when, when it had gone down my uh, gullet, as you put it. All <laughs> oh, right, no, that's a good observation. Never thought of that. Well done. By the way, for the record, uh, Charlie looked very, very pleased with himself, indeed, <laughs> when he made that observation. There's 2020 Chardonnay, white burgundy Chardonnay. 2020, a bit young, maybe, but it was still delicious. But it was 130 quid a bottle, and remember... The point was, could we taste the difference between the house wine and the Puligny Montrachet answer? Absolutely. Even I could. Obviously, you could. And even my, my, my son could. Uh, exactly. And, and Charlie could too. It was, it was a delicious wine, but not a cheap wine, obviously. So we'll find some prices in between. But we're just moving on, one for the road, just to show that, you know, sometimes what annoys me about wine, everyone thinks it's all about France. 
we've been talking about white Bordeaux, we've been talking about white Burgundy. So I think it's time we went to Corbière in southern France. Oh shit, so we stayed in France the whole time. <laughs> Brilliant. I'm sick of the emphasis on France. Enjoy your French wine. So enjoy your French wine. But but now we're in the south, we've got to give Ollie a bit of red, obviously, because if Ol had his way, we'd be sipping Sauvignon Blanc, you know, till the cows come home. This is Corbière. All I would say is that that's in the deep south, Mediterranean climate, lots of sun, lots of chant time for the grapes to get ripe, the black grapes to get ripe and fruity. Expect full-bodied wines because the more ripening the grapes get, the more sugar they build up. Sugar membrane grapes means alcohol in wine. So don't fall off your motorbike on the way home, all. But what do you think of this? Have a sip. Golly, it really is fruity. Goodness me. Hang on, I'm giving it another stir. It's quite a full glass. We've got um, large measures here. That uh, it's probably 175. It might even be uh, yeah, 125. Anyway, let I me think, not obsess. I think we're celebrating the fact we just bought a bottle of the most expensive wine here. Yeah, wh- how much was it again? 130 pounds. Ooh, right. I see. Okay, I'm gonna get I'm gonna get 40 quid off my son later. I know he's poor, but um, hang on. Oh, golly, that is so deep and rich. Rich is taking a sip. I'm gonna take a sip now. Oh, I just love it. Oh, I don't even like red wine, but that has got everything. Everything. Oh, and I'm, okay, let me just uh, put myself on the line and say, not too tanniny, but there's some tannin shit going on there. Great comment, Ol, because the reason I was thinking, the reason Ol loves this wine, is that there aren't too many tannins going on. Most punters don't want to be confronted by high levels of harsh tannins attacking their gums. They want a fruity wine that's got a bit of structure, but the structure's not dominating the wine. And here we have a lovely fruity wine, black fruit, black cherries, plums, red plums, plums and cherries but really lovely concentration. We'll check the vintage out, but actually, this far south in France, vintage variation is less because it's hot every summer, not like northern or central France where, you know, it depends on, you know, well, it's a bit like the test match, you know, when it gets rained off, some seasons it does, sometimes it doesn't. And that influence will be the same in northern and central France. Corbière is an Appalachian controlé in southern France. It's been around for quite a while, since the late 40s, the Appalachian. The wines have been around much longer than that. The, the great varieties here will be Carignan, which is a bit of a wild variety that used to produce lots of really awful plonk, but now is tamed a bit. They grow less of it, but they will have blended this with maybe um, Grenache, definitely. Grenache is a, is a grape from a black grape from southern France that loves the heat, gives lots of fruit. So I think this is what we're tasting. It's really fruity, isn't it? Plummy, cherryish. Red and black varieties of both. The tannins are, are beautifully light, which makes it a very accessible wine. And it's just delicious, isn't it? This again, we're back, in a way, we're back to Smiling Donkey. In a, it's a cheerful, positive wine, isn't it? A bit of sunshine in the glass, don't you think? Yeah, I mean, I, I listen to you very carefully when you're describing wines. And like I've talked about adjectives loads before. And some of them I sort of, I, I understand now a lot better than I did before. One that you have used a couple of times on this wine is um, well-structured. Could you just describe that? Is that something I can't get my, my, he- my head around about what that actually means? By structure, what we're talking about is the backbone of the wine. So when we did Riesling's To Be Cheerful, we talked about Riesling's backbone of acidity, which gives the wine structure. And it's really noticeable with Riesling, a white variety, obviously. Here with Corbière, basically what I'm saying is Every decent glass of wine, whether it's inexpensive or super premium, needs structure. If wines don't have structure, they're not particularly pleasant because by structure we mean acidity, 
tannin in red wines. We mean body, as in how thin is it, watery is it, or fruit, full and fruity is it. Structure is the backbone. It's not the beautiful quality, the indescribable you know, adjectives that we're reaching for, the metaphors. The structure is a basic thing. It's like physics, like building blocks. It's like a building. It's like, how can you rave about a building's or a house has got a beautiful fireplace or incredible sweeping features within if the foundations of the house aren't there. So it's basically the foundation. I'm starting to understand. That's a good, a good description. I think, uh, let me put it in my words, um, just so I understand. Are you saying there are certain things that a wine needs to be? The tannins need to be in balance. There needs to be acidity. It needs to have a certain amount of alcohol in it. It needs to have a certain amount of fruitiness in it. So it's almost like there's some fundamentals which have to be there before we can build the sort of fancy stuff, the special stuff that goes on top. That, that's what it feels like you're saying. Yes, because you basically just made a great comment, which may sound very basic, and the word is balance. And this is the trick of, of, of good um, winemaking. You've got to balance loads of things. You've got to... Acidity is really important structurally to make a wine palatable. But too much acidity is unpleasant. Too much alcohol is unpleasant. The alcohol will dominate the wine. And people don't, particularly these days, don't want to get squiffy on one glass of wine. So that's got to be kept in check. Fruit is important but fruit isn't the only thing about a wine particularly for wines you know got some complexity the fruit will be part of it but maybe the oak aging of the wine and maybe dried fruit or some earthy character like our Pulini Montrachet you know is part of the equation as well so we're trying to juggle lots of things here and keep things in balance and so that's what we're talking about by structure. And you remember when we talked about Riesling, I mentioned how Riesling, because it's grown in Germany, which has a very cool climate, the cooler the climate, naturally the higher the acidity in the grapes. If you've got high acidity in grapes, you need to balance it, as they do in Germany, sometimes with sweetness, which is why we tasted off-dry, medium-sweet wines on our, in our Riesling app. That was a balancing act. With our Corbière here, we're balancing high alcohol, which you get easily in the warmer south of France because the grapes get sugars developing in the vineyard so quickly because the climate's warm. High sugars means high alcohol. Heck, we've got to balance the sugar. So we need good acidity, which here we're getting from a grape variety called Carignan, which is naturally high in acidity. Blended with Grenache, which actually is a bit low in acidity. So it doesn't help us. Grenache is not great for acidity, but the... Um, Carignan is definitely helping in the blend here and both great varieties are giving us loads of lovely fruits, they're giving us some tannin as well and all these things interacting. In this wine, this Corbière, which is not the most complicated wine in the world, but I tell you what it's delicious, isn't it? Yeah, no, it's great. It's a great explanation of, of loads of things. My initial question was about structure, but you expanded out into uh, lots of areas that make loads of sense. I'm going to just have one more sip uh, and then describe it. Oh, it's so nice. You can get a red wine that's so dominating and kind of headachey uh, of the kind of big clarets that my father used to give me, and uh, which actually sounds like child abuse, but it was far from that. It was delicious. But um, that is just... I, well, I, I wouldn't say structure, I would say balance. Because there is a hit of alcohol, there's a 
burst of fruit. There's a little bit of tannins in the background, and it just seems like everything's going on. Uh, but also, <laughs> the important thing is, a bit like a beautiful house, which has to have its foundations and its roof, and it has to be able to withstand wind and all the practical stuff, it's also a thing of great beauty to look at in, in terms of a house and to taste in terms of wine. Well said, Ol. I would say this Corbière, which is a relatively simple wine, is in perfect balance, perfect harmony. It's inexpensive, and it is absolutely beautiful. So what we've done there, I think, in the three wines we've tasted, we've been quite lucky, really, because we are looking not necessarily for the most... We're not even looking for the best wine. We're looking for value for money. And we may have found that sort of Goldilocks zone where, no, this is not a cheap wine. But it's so delicious, it might be the most valuable we've tasted tonight. Tell us about the... um the, the first white we had that we thought was not brilliant but okay-ish, the house white, what was it? So it was the uh, Gordon's own label Bordeaux Blanc uh, and that retailed, oh no not retail, well, well we were charged <laughs> £27.50 for the bottle. Okay, these are obviously kind of restaurant wine bar prices, not the prices there'd be in the shops. And the second one we tasted, I think we've already mentioned it, was a rather splendid, slightly young, lovely, I think it was 2020, Pouligny Montrachet White Burgundy, yum, 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 yum. Ouch, 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 ouch. £130. A pound sterling, that's the entire budget for season two, blown on a rather delicious bottle of wine, which we uh, gave a bit to my son as well, which I don't think that was pearls before swine. I think he appreciated it. Oh, yeah, yeah, he owes us 40 quid for that. Anyway, and the um, <laughs> Corbière Ol. Ol is not a red man, as we know. But it's no. getting a bit redder the older he gets. Well, certainly a bit pinker, maybe. Um, certainly. How, so those lovely veins it? in your face burst. <laughs> and you've taken a lovely purple hue, like uh, one of the gentlemen in a Dickens novel. Uh, oh, Mr. The, Bumble. <laughs> yeah, Mr. Bumble from Oliver. Tell us about um, the Corbière Roll. Yeah, it was a Corbière Boutinac. And that was charged at £52. So a little lot of money, but I think maybe we hit the sweet spot value-wise. But uh, yeah, those are the three. And just remember, guys, these are on-trade L- central London prices. So real prices, you can probably kind of divide it by three, sort of, I would think, something like. So maybe in real terms, possibly £9 for the Bordeaux. £40 for the white burgundy and maybe sort of 17, 16, £17 for a good Corbière. Yeah, that's about right, I, I would say. And we're going to go even lower on the price point, maybe even higher on the value, uh, in the next part of our value duumph. Uh, Possibly so. There you go. We'll continue on our journey in our quest uh, to look for wine value. Mm-hmm.